terrific. That's oh, my Bible somewhere. Back there? No? Around? Somewhere? Down here? Yeah, green one. I know what it looks like. All right. Good thing I have the whole text printed out in front of me anyway. Uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, even though uh, we ended with verse 14 last week, we're going to start there and read from verse 14 through verse 22. Um, before we begin, um, you know, we we were uh, watching as you guys came in, and we know who came in first, we know who came in last, and you both won free cats. So if you were the last one through the door, um, someone someone dropped free kittens off at church a couple weeks ago. Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, yeah, for free, for free. I didn't pay a thing for them. And some of them ended up at my house, so I took one for the team so that you don't have to take all six to your house. But there are some still here, and they're all very friendly and nice and can't stay here. So uh, you don't need to ask permission. You don't even need to tell me that you took one. Just, just do your part. That's right. If you only take one, you're going to need a friend. Yeah. All right. All right. Ellen's got buddies for the cats that you're going to adopt from, from church. Um, if, yeah, they, they can't stay here, which means they might end up at your house the same way they arrived here. If you don't. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, one, one more thing. One more thing. Uh, you know, these... Things just couldn't, I, I tried to work them seamlessly into the sermon, you know, as illustrations, but the food sacrifice to idols thing and the free cats, I just couldn't quite make the connection. Um, yeah, what, 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 one more thing. Uh, I, I, at least two people were surprised to see me here this morning um, because you didn't listen closely to when I'm leaving on sabbatical. Um, and, and, uh, so I'm going to remind you, I'm going to hear, I'm here today and next Sunday and the Sunday after that, okay? And then my family will be taking a trip and you'll all be here, okay? <laughs> Sound good? Uh, it, yeah, more, more on that in, uh, coming up. We're actually going to be, uh, this might be the last time we're in Corinthians for a little bit. I'll be uh, giving some special messages on sabbatical and the church and things in the coming couple of weeks, so you can expect that. But now that you have turned to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14 says this. It says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel, after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Jesus, thank you that you are strong and that 
that you defeat all our enemies, even the ones in us. We thank you that you are jealous, God. Contend for us. That you seek us out and want unbroken fellowship with us. And you're, you're unwilling to see our hearts divided uh, between allegiance to you and, and some other lesser idol or lie. We pray, Lord, that, that as your word is spoken today, as your word is preached, the result would be uh, quick runners, that we would be quicker to flee from idolatry and also running to, to run to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We set our eyes on you now. We fix our eyes on you and ask for your word and your spirit to work in us to that, that eternal weight of glory, shaping us into the image of Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Uh, let's get a big chunk of review here. Um, chapter 8 was a while ago. Chapter 8 began with this introduction in verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols... And, and that began a long discussion on Christian liberty and giving preference to the weaker brother, to people whose consciences are affected a little bit differently than yours, perhaps. And it was about living a life of self-denial and serving others at great expense to yourself, like Jesus has shown us how to do. And at the end of chapter 9, Paul encouraged us to run well. He told us we're in a race, and the way that races work is... Not everyone wins, but someone does. So run like you want to be that guy. Discipline yourself. Form good habits. Stay focused on the finish line. Denying yourself things that you could have for the sake of a victory, uh, the prize. And, and, you know, denying yourself of those things that could slow you down, it just makes good sense for an athlete. What does this have to do with chapter 8 and food sacrifice to idols? Well, Paul had already told them idols are nothing. Actually, the meat that you buy at the grocery store that they bought at the grocery store, you probably don't run into this problem buying meat at the grocery store. The meat they bought, uh, it, it wasn't, you know, it might have been used in a pagan festival or something, but there weren't demons in it. Eat what you want. Uh, eating this meat is something you can do. But he said, if it does harm to another person in, in your church that you're one body with, well, that would be really dumb, huh? That'd be really, that'd be kind of stupid, actually to slow down the body of Christ that you are a member of, but with your, your liberty. If it does harm to another person by offending their conscience and then encouraging them maybe to go back to past behavior, idol worship, whatever, then it's better to just avoid this thing that you could do, but it's not best to do it. It would be better to deny yourself for their good and the good of the body. In the running the race analogy, the fast person is the person who is, is loving well, according to Paul. They're fast because they are putting aside weights, things they could have, but don't benefit anyone. So then in chapter 10, Paul listed several examples in Israel's early history where Israel ran their race poorly. He gives examples of Israel's failings, not for us to follow, of course, but for us to avoid. And, and more than that, for us to pay attention to and see that we could make similar mistakes. We're not above making mistakes. And evidently, there were those in Corinth that had developed a sort of spiritual arrogance that they figured their own sanctification had developed so much that they were pretty much safe from those kinds of errors and sins. So Paul writes to these guys and to us and says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's good advice. And then he says that we are all tempted 
this is in last week's sermon, and that temptation, the temptations we suffer are common to man. But just as the temptations are ordinary and they're part of the human experience, they're predictable, so also God's faithfulness is predictable. It's steadfast. It is constant. You can count on it. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. In fact, it was this statement, God is faithful, that this argument is sort of centered around in chapter 10. And it's something Paul has already written about in chapter 1. God is faithful and he provides a way of escape. And we saw last week that both the words escape and temptation have these broad definitions. The word for temptation includes the idea of testing, just hard times. It's not just a temptation of lust towards something that might be pleasurable. It's the idea of suffering too. It's temptation uh, and it's also just difficulty. The word escape can mean exactly what we think of, a door to run through, a quick exit that will get you out of danger into safety. But it also includes the idea of not being able to exit and rather going through a time of suffering and enduring a time of suffering, avoiding not the situation, but the sin that you're tempted to in it. If you suffer well, you escape doubt, fear, and despair. You escape the enemy's clutches by suffering well with your mind on God and your heart loyal to him. And we ended last week with a look at verse 14, which is where we're starting this week. Verse 14 is the what do I do about it part. Here's your personal application. If God is faithful, if God is faithful and I am tempted, what do I do? Verse 14, flee idolatry. And we we talked a little bit about how fleeing from a false god or a lie, an idol, implies the running to the true God. It is God who is faithful, so run to him. Idolatry is a lie, so run to the one who says, I am the truth. God has provided a way of escape, a door marked exit. So we run to the one who says, I am the door. Jesus is our hope in every trial and temptation. Wow, that sounds like a good sermon. You should go and listen to it. I did it last week. Okay, now we get to verse 15 through 22. Paul is going to continue in in this discussion of idolatry. And in doing so, he's really going back to the issue that he started in chapter 8. There have been a few good tangents. He's gone a different direction a couple times, but he's back on track with the issue of food sacrificed to idols. And if you'll remember, there were two kinds of people, two different kinds of problems in Corinth as it related to food that they could buy in the meat markets, food sacrificed to idols. There were those who knew that food was food and it never meant anything more or less spiritual. You know, a bad guy could say magic words above the food and it's still food. Those people may have been technically right. But they didn't take into account the other people in their church who had major problems with this, who Paul said were weak in conscience. Because they had, these people had engaged in very real spiritual practices, very real idol worship. Paul even says demon worship. And the food was involved. For them, the meal did have very real spiritual significance, spiritual importance. And Paul is going to say this again in the rest of the chapter. But the real point is, do what is most loving to your brother. That's the bottom line. If avoiding food, even though it doesn't mean anything, and you know that, if that helps your brother follow Christ more closely, then isn't it worth it? Isn't that something you want to do for your brother? If eating something is going to cause your brother to stumble, don't eat that thing. It is implied in all of this that the weaker brother who is given preference will then be helped and educated and discipled so that they can become a stronger brother. It is Paul's hope that each Christian would grow in maturity and into the fullness of the stature of Christ. But until then, sometimes you've got to meet people where they're at. 
So at this point, Paul has addressed the people who took their liberty very seriously, but it was at the expense of charity. And then now we come, we come further in the chapter. Paul has already said that the idol is nothing. The meat is nothing. It's not infected with demons or anything like that. However, there were these pagan rituals and practices that Paul still doesn't want Christians to engage in. So here's, here's how this worked. An idol was worshipped. Meat was sacrificed to an idol. Well, guess what? Idols don't actually get hungry. Someone's got to eat that food. The food was given to the worshippers, the priests, some was burned. But of course, most of it would be sold the next day in the market at a pretty good discount. Now, it's that food that Paul will say, eat it if you want, just don't cause anyone to stumble. In verse 25, later on in this chapter, he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. It's like, just, just buy the food and eat it. It's fine. But if it causes a problem, then know when you need to back off and when you need to just prefer the, con the weaker conscience, the, the, the weaker brother. That's meat that's sold after the festival, the morning after the big pagan worship service, the slaughter. Um, he says, buy the meat. But should Christians go to the party the night before, the pagan worship service, where they sacrifice the meat to idols? After all, he'd already told them that an idol is nothing, right? There's only one God. So they could go and say, well, I know this doesn't actually mean anything because I know better. So I, I can go and get the meat when it's fresh. And there's good music, and like I can, I can go. Just because the meat at the market the next day is left unchanged, the ritual meal itself does carry spiritual importance. And if these things seem contrary to you, then you're not alone. I think the Corinthians would have thought so too. Some of them would have said, but you just said this. You said it doesn't matter what we eat, what we drink. And he says, no, it matters who you're with. It matters what you do. These are spiritually important things. And knowing, anticipating their questions, I think this is why Paul brings the Lord's Supper into the picture as a means of teaching, not just the importance, but the spiritual reality of our rituals, the real consequences of our actions and our associations. This passage also fills in the details of how we might flee from idolatry, even if we believe that idols are nothing. Modern Christians, right? Us Western, modern American Christians, we fall into this camp of those who have knowledge. We know, oh, idols aren't real. That's not real. We know there's no demon hiding in our cheeseburgers, okay? But unfortunately, we also believe there's no meaning in actually most things, unfortunately. There's no meaning in our meals or other things. And we say, well, that doesn't, I can do whatever I want because I know that I know the truth. And as long as I know that God is God and everything here is, is not God, I can kind of just live however I want. That's ridiculous. The world is full of meaning. As Christians, we see the world and all our actions not as less important or less significant, but as more so. And this includes what we eat, and it definitely includes what parties we go to. Let's read from verse 14 again through 16. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak, to, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? He's been talking about escaping, right? And our escape is Jesus. Jesus, you are my rescue. He's been talking about running from idols, and we know that that, that means we run to Jesus. And now, by no accident, he brings up communion, the Lord's Supper. Where do we go to meet Jesus? We go to communion. Where do we run to in order to be free from, from the temptations that accost us? We go to Jesus to have fellowship with his flesh and his blood through the cup and bread that Paul talks about here. Now, the real study in on the Lord's Supper is in chapter 11. 
So you're going to have to wait till next year till we actually get there. We're just warming up. I'm just wetting the appetite, okay? Um, but right here, we see some truths that we need to get to as soon as possible. We can't wait till chapter 11 to get into this. The way the church goes to Jesus is by taking communion. And when we take communion, we are meeting with Jesus. Now, of course, it is not the only way that people meet with Jesus. We come to him in prayer. We meet, to, we meet him through his body that is the church. We go to him in scripture. And in all of these things, we are going to him with faith, which is the only way to approach God. But in our text, the means of fellowship with Christ that Paul mentions, the example that Paul uses here to teach is teach first how we flee idolatry and two, the importance of our rituals and our associations and our fellowship is communion. That's his object lesson. And you have to remember that while the apostles' doctrine was being preached through the church, no one had personal copies of Scripture. Even after the close of the canon, when every single church had all 27 books of the New Testament, individuals still didn't have their own copies of the Bible the way in the same way that you do. You and I, the way we meet with Jesus, is probably in our personal quiet times. We pray, we sing, we worship, we read the Scripture. Uh, that's not the main source of fellowship that Paul mentions in this teaching example. It is communion. Fellowship with Jesus is done in the drinking of a blessed cup and eating of a blessed bread. Now, it seems, the way he talks about this, it seems like the Corinthians would have taken this for granted because Paul's doing his rhetorical questions, right? His hypotheticals. He says, is it not fellowship? The, the uh, implied answer is, oh, well, yeah, of course, Paul, we know that. The way Paul writes in asking these rhetorical questions, he's not introducing any new information. He's just telling them things they already knew. The answer to these questions would have been a resounding and universal, unanimous yes. We have no reason to believe that there were any naysayers. Is the cup of the blessing, is the cup that we bless, the communion of the blood of Christ, yes or no? Yes. Is the bread the communion of the body of Christ, yes or no? Yes. Now the word communion here, it means fellowship or sharing. There might be a footnote in some of your Bibles that says, as much. What Paul is saying is, do we or do we not, when we gather for church on a Sunday and we take communion, we eat the, eat the bread, drink the cup, do we or do we not share Jesus with each other through this sacrament? We do. That, that is what we do. We're not just sharing bread. We are sharing Jesus. We're not just sharing wine. We're sharing Jesus. And we're not just having fellowship with each other, though that's very important. We are enjoying the company of Jesus. Now, these are two very important aspects of communion. You meeting with Jesus and you meeting with his church. Uh, there are three things that are called the body of Christ in scripture, right? There's the physical body of Jesus that lived, died, and rose again and is coming again. There's the church or the body of Christ, right? And then there's the bread we take at communion. This is my body broken for you. Taking communion in bread and wine is taking in Christ, and it is a confession that you are one not only with Christ, but with the people of Christ. You're confessing that you are one with the people that take this meal with you. Taking communion is fellowship with Christ. It is fellowship with his church. Now, there's a lot in here that you're just going to have to wait for until we get to chapter 11 to get a really good look at. But the main central point is that in taking communion, something real is happening. And when you take communion, you are really entering into the presence of Jesus. Verse 17 emphasizes this, uh, the community nature of communion. Because when you go to meet Jesus, you're not alone. You're meeting his body with his body, the church. In verse 17, it says, For we, 
though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. St. Augustine took this in a really interesting direction. I mean, there's no way to paraphrase this and have it not sound weird. It's like we're one body because of one bread. We're, we're the bread. Are we taking the bread? The body of Christ is taking the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is looking at the body of Christ taking the body of Christ. Like you can get, you can see where you could get in a mess here. And, and St. Augustine did. He didn't mind writing about this. He, he wrote, if you receive the Eucharist well, you are what you eat. Since you are the body of Christ and his members, it is your mystery which you receive. <laughs> Now, communion has always been about the unity of the church. First, our unity with Christ, and second, our unity with each other. There is certainly a reverence, and ought to be a reverence, around communion and a seriousness that we must acknowledge. But the idea of being united by a meal is actually, a, it's beyond religious practice. It was something more commonly accepted, even outside you know, religious ceremony. This idea was just a basic understanding of Eastern hospitality. Communion is about unity because eating with someone has always been about unity. In, in most cultures, ancient or modern, sharing a meal with someone is sharing yourself with them. And eating with them carries the idea of becoming one with them, which is what Paul writes. He says, we are one bread. Why are we the bread? Because you are what you eat. And, and we might say that there's, you know, if I, if I take bread and break it, which is what Christ did, right? He broke the bread. And I take bread and I break it and I give half to you. And then I eat the other half. And then I ask, how many pieces of bread are there? And you're like, well, there's two. You just broke it and there's two. Wrong answer. There's still just one. You can break it into a thousand pieces and there's still just one piece of bread. And now that one piece of bread is in all of us. And if we are shaped literally, biologically, into our human selves by what we eat, you are all made from the same stuff. You are one bread. You become that piece of bread, or rather the bread is broken down and then becomes us. Now, both of us who ate that bread, all of us who ate that bread, are made of the same stuff. We're made of the same meal. Made of the same stuff, we are the same stuff. Eating with someone, then, become you you become one with them. And eating with them becomes one of the most intimate, important things you can do with them. This is why, this is why we would not eat with an enemy. The Jews wouldn't even eat with Gentiles. This was a problem in the early church because they had to overcome this idea in order to show that we are actually united with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But there are these barriers and they're like, I don't want to eat with them because we're not united. And Paul had to say, yes, you are. You know, people wouldn't eat with their enemies. They wouldn't eat with people that they wouldn't want to be seen as united with. Which is why Paul is saying, there are dinner parties you should not go to. And you can't just pull the card and being like, but I'm, I'm, I have knowledge and that meets nothing. And they're, they're worshiping a little gold statue that someone made. It doesn't mean anything. And he's like, you know what means things? Eating with people. That means something. It means a lot. Because while the meat may not be tainted, the fellowship you have with those around you is real. The fellowship you have with idol worshipers is real. And Paul goes even further to a place we're maybe uncomfortable with. The fellowship that you have with demons is real. A Christian cannot involve themselves in the occult or in other religious worship. To reuse the proverb that was originally about adultery, which scripture often associates with idolatry, can man take fire to his chest and not be burned? The answer is no. Spiritual association leaves a mark. 
Do you see why Paul brings all this up now? Because he needed to show them that just like their feasts, their Sunday morning feasts, was, was real fellowship with Christ, so also there was a reality in the feasts that were dedicated to these false demonic entities. There's a distinction he needs to make. The food at the grocery store that happens to be used the day before in a pagan ritual, whatever. It's just meat. If your conscience is not offended by it, go ahead and eat it. If your conscience is offended, don't eat it. If you're eating with someone whose conscience would be offended, don't eat it. It's not worth it. But the pagan ritual itself, where you're there with everyone else, where their meal is representing fellowship with this God, where they are worshiping a false God in front of these false religious leaders and pagan priests and all your friends and neighbors... It's a little bit different than buying food uh, for a good price of the market, don't you think? I don't care if you think my conscience is clean. I can do this. I don't want you going through the motions of worshiping idols. Everyone in their Christian worship service would know exactly what was meant by the Lord's Supper. This was something that they did every time they gathered on the Lord's Day at the beginning of the week. They would all know that there was a real fellowship that was happening with Jesus and, there, and, uh, and with each other. There was a real confession of unity with their brothers and sisters. Now, if you go to the pagan feast with all the idol worshipers, you shouldn't be surprised that there is a real fellowship that is happening with spiritual realities beyond your comprehension. And you shouldn't be surprised that your actions are confession to all the other idol worshipers. I'm one of you. I'm with you. And that's what every Christian compromising in this way was really saying. They were associating at the deepest level with the world, the flesh, the devil. And they were saying by attending these things and eating these meals with these people, I'm just like you. Which inevitably means that this Christianity thing you heard about me is just kind of like, like a like a hat that I put on sometimes and I take it off just as easily. You know, this is, this is something that is, it's not really who I am, it's just something about me. You know, like my favorite color and, and would you please pass the potatoes? And then you eat with these people and that's what you're confessing when you are with these people. I'm just like you, which is the exact opposite of what Jesus Christ has called each one of us to say and what Paul preached to all the churches. You're nothing like them. Start acting like it. Again, that kind of festival, that kind of meal is very different than just buying meat at the grocery store. But Paul, needing to show that he's not inconsistent, he's already said idols are nothing, right? But while the idea that the meat was somehow magic was a lie, it is the devil who is the father of lies. And so he has to draw this distinction and explain himself. It is possible to say, God is God, idols are false, the meat is fine, don't be superstitious. And at the same time, recognize that there is a spiritual world. Our enemy does seek whom he may devour. It is possible to stray into spiritually dark places. It is possible to be under the sway of the wicked one. And especially, it is especially possible to display demonic behavior when you are seeking your own at the expense of others, because that is kind of an anti-Christ behavior. And verse 24, really, if you scan down there, it's kind of the crux of this. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other well, other's well-being. This was the main point of chapter 8. This is where Paul is going to take the conversation in the next paragraph, which we're getting ahead of ourselves. The first, verse 18 and 19. He says, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Pause there for a second. Just like the Christians among them would all realize that communion was a real fellowship, 
so the Jewish Christians would recall the realities of the fellowship around the altar at the temple. They are partakers of the altar. Partakers, it's the same as fellowship or sharing earlier in the passage. Uh, it's, a, it's a word you probably know, you've heard before, koinonia. Um, and while the altar was used for all sorts of different sacrifices, there was one sacrifice in particular that was actually called the fellowship offering or the peace offering. And instead of just burning the entire offering on the altar, for the peace offering, some of the meat would be burned, some would be eaten by the priests, and some would be eaten by the worshiper and all his friends and family, all together. The idea here is that because of the sacrifice, there was the unity of a meal being shared by God, man, and God and man, and by man and his brother, because you'd bring your friends to help you eat the, eat the offering. Sounds kind of like communion, right? Because of a sacrifice, God and man meet together and man is united with this new humanity called the church. That's kind of the point. So Paul is saying, you know this, guys. You've seen this. This is nothing new. This has always been the way it works. Worship is the uniting of your soul to that which is beyond your soul. And this is represented in holy meals. It always has been since Moses and it continues in the church. We are united to God and each other through these holy meals. So don't go to this other meal that everyone says is holy and saying, well, I'm a Christian. I can do what I want because I have liberty. He's like, no, no, no. No, worship is beyond you. Don't be joining with the rest of those worshipers that are worshiping something you don't want to touch. Now, Paul again anticipates the rejection because he's already said idols are nothing. So in verse 19, he says, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say that I'm being superstitious. You're going to say that I, I believe the meat is something, the idol is something, and... It's all woo-woo-woo. What about what you just said in chapter 8? He says, this is what I'm saying, verse 20. Rather, that the things that the Gentiles sacrifice, no, the things, the things that they sacrifice, which he's already said are nothing. It's meat, you can buy it, whatever. The things which they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. This probably doesn't seem like anything controversial, and it really shouldn't be. But if you have a religious festival scheduled right after this service in which you will celebrate and worship Satan, might I suggest you are not really getting the most out of church. Okay? And that's kind of what he's saying. He's saying you can't have it both ways here. Now, Maybe by now, with our discussion of food sacrifice to idols, you're thinking, well, what am I supposed to be getting out of church? Because the application seems to be just out of my reach. The wonderful thing about Scripture is that this will always be applicable. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is profitable. So we know that there are riches here, profits available to each of us. And I don't think you have to back up from the text too much to see how all of this comes into focus for us in the 21st century. This passage here is to teach the Corinthians to fellowship well and is to warn them of the risks of fellowshipping poorly. We might not be tempted to go to pagan barbecues. I don't know, maybe you get invited to parties I don't, you know, get invited to. But we can still take this passage and run in the direction that Paul is pointing and leading. This passage begins with the command, flee idolatry. The specifics of the Corinthians' idolatry, it's going to be vastly different from the idolatry that we are tempted towards in the 21st century, yes. But the solution is the same. Fleeing from worldliness, from lusts, from false hopes and tempting lies, that will look like running to Christ's body. Fleeing those things still looks the same. It's coming to meet with Jesus in his body, at his body. 
Remember what idolatry is, right? It's anything that you might be tempted to place above or before God himself. Idolatry is an issue of priority. It is any lie that you believe about ultimate satisfaction or ultimate identity. As in, this will make me happy. This is worth my sacrifice because this is where I find worth. That's idolatry. Idolatry is about, like I said, priorities. And Paul, when he says flee idolatry, is saying examine your priorities with a blowtorch and a hammer. Are you placing something else where God belongs? That was essentially what the Corinthians were doing when they went to the pagan festivals. Even, even the ones who were uh, flaunting their liberty and eating the food that other people was, were irritated by, right? Their priorities were all out of whack. They were, they were saying, it's more important for me to do what I can than for me to love the body of Christ, the church, well. He says, examine those priorities. That's a kind of idolatry, isn't it? Are you placing something else where God belongs? That was essentially the problem here with uh, the pagan festivals and things. They were engaging in behavior that should be done only in the presence of Christ. They were having a sacred holy meal that represented fellowship with a God. And that's something that should really only happen in the Lord's Supper. Now, do you see what Christians are being called to? Not just Corinthian Christians, North War Christians, all the Christians. Christians are being called to a purity of devotion. They're being called away from maybe what we would call a Sunday morning Christianity, where you're allowed to look like the world, sound like the world, eat like the world, and then roll into church on Sunday morning and say with the rest of the saints, I'm with you guys, and say to Jesus, you're my all in all. But all the practices and associations prove this to be false. When Paul talked about avoiding meat sacrificed to idols, we saw that it wasn't really about the meal. It was about loving your neighbor. And then now he's saying, you as a Christian really can't engage in these behaviors anymore. We see it's not really about whether or not you go to an you know, Aphrodite or Artemis-themed dinner party. It's about the fact that you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And any room in that heart that is not in love with God is open to other things. This passage isn't about one particular kind of idol only. It's about worshiping God above all else. So there's no room for any kind of idolatry. Paul was talking to Christians who had wrongly assumed that the Lord did not demand every part of their lives, every second of their lives. Don't make the same mistake. The Corinthian Christians had wrongly assumed that the Lord was tolerant. He is not. He is jealous. Verse 22 says, Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he Exodus 34 verse 14 says that God's name is jealous. Now he has a lot of names. When it says his name is jealous, it is saying that jealousy is something that is essential to his character. The Corinthians who are compromising and taking the route of God and this, God and that, God and the world as long as I give God his, you know, his tithe of myself or something. They weren't counting on a God who desired every part of them all the time. And we mustn't understand this to mean that God is jealous of us as if we're having fun and he's missing out. No, he's jealous for us against everything else. And the Christian who takes their own soul and says, God, what is yours by right of creation, by what is, what is yours by right of redemption, this heart of mine that you purchased with your blood, I'm going to put some of it over here and I'm going to have fellowship with Jesus and the world. They are tempting God. Asking for a fight. 
If you want to take something that belongs to him and then take it and hold it away from him, expect a fight. Even if it's your heart that you're holding. Paul asks the question, are you stronger than God? Meaning, are you ready for what's coming? No, you're not stronger than God. He will get what is his. He will fight for his glory and your attention and affection that is put... Any of your attention and affection that's put somewhere else is a challenge. You are asking for a fight that you will lose. So naturally, this is what Paul says. Don't put yourself in that position. How? Flee idolatry. Run from anything that you have placed before Christ in value and worth. Run. Don't walk. Run from every sin and every snare and every compromising behavior. Throw off every weight and sin that so easily entangles you. Run to Jesus, whose body and blood have been given to you. Run to Jesus, who offers you true fellowship with him. Prioritize his glory and his church, and give glory to the jealous God who is stronger than you. And so, so much stronger and better and more beautiful and more satisfying than anything you could compare him to. Go to feast on Jesus so that you lose your appetite for anything else. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you wanting nothing else, nothing other than you. Jesus, we, we don't want we're not here asking for more of Jesus. We're asking for only Jesus. We hear your your invitation to Mary, uh, Mary and Martha, saying the one thing is needful. We want the one thing. We run to you. We flee from our idols. We cast down our idols. And pray, Lord, that the the heart of your church, the hearts of your saints, would be loyal to you in every way, unwilling to have divided hearts, unwilling to compromise in any way. We thank you that you are a jealous God. We thank you that you give us an exit to run through in Christ. Bless your church, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.